Thank you. You may be seated there if you want. Thank you, honey. I can't sing as beautifully as that baritone voice of George Beverly Shea, but that's a beautiful song, and I've heard him sing it, uh, uh, and uh, just an incredibly beautiful voice. Well, tonight uh, we're going to continue. I'm in Ecclesiastes. Why am I in Ecclesiastes? Um. Tonight, we're going to continue our study of the book of Revelation, and I invite you to turn to chapters 2 and 3. I told you last week that we were going to cover chapters 2 and 3, and I lied. We're not going to be able to cover both of those chapters, even leaving out a lot of things. I can't get all of that, uh, I can't get all the information in, in um, on two chapters in one night. So we're going to look at chapter 2, and then next week we'll come back and we'll look at chapter 3. These are the seven churches to whom the revelation was originally to be delivered. If you remember from chapter 1, the message came from the Father to Jesus, from Jesus to the angel, from the angel to John, and from John to the seven churches. And part of what uh, chapter 1 was about was this uh, image, this uh, presentation of the resurrected Christ, and it was a an image, a presentation of the judgment, completely different view of Christ than we're normally used to. We're in the Gospels, he's meek and mild. In Revelation 1, we see him coming in judgment. And uh, you'll see that judgment unfolded when we get to chapter 4 and forward. But this revelation was to be delivered to these churches. I want to give you a picture of a map, if I can do that, uh, just show you a little bit about where these churches were, where these churches are, if that's something that we're able to do. There we go. Um, these are the seven churches that we're talking about, the church at Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. We're going to see the first, uh, the first four of these uh, in chapter two, and then we'll look at the next three uh, next Sunday evening. But if you look over to the right, uh, you can see the map of how they're located. Ephesus, obviously, is right down here next to the Aegean Sea. You see Patmos. Uh, when John was banished from Ephesus out to Patmos, you can see uh, where Patmos is located. Uh, when he was allowed to come back, he comes back to Ephesus. And then this letter is to be taken to these churches. And you see how they're uh, located sort of in a, a horseshoe kind of a shape. 
across the sea, you see Athens, uh, Greece. Uh, if you've ever been there, Mary and I have been there. Uh, it's a fascinating place to go. But these seven churches are located in the territory of Turkey today. And so these are the churches that we're talking about. God does his work through local churches. God delivers his word through local churches, people who make up local churches. That's how God does his work. When most of the New Testament letters are written to what? They're written to local churches. And so these are the seven churches that we're going to be looking at this evening or this evening and next Sunday evening and sort of how they are positioned Uh, It's along, these churches are along a a trade route, a travel route, that it made it very easy to to make uh, travel to these different places. But then from these seven churches, the message gets delivered in other places. It gets taken to other churches. But as you can imagine, you want these, uh, you want this message to go to prominent places, prominent cities from which you can launch out and the message can go well beyond that one locality. Now, in looking at these churches, there's a pattern that develops. Uh, there's a five-fold pattern that develops. If I can bring up that next slide. And you'll just want to write down that five-fold uh, pattern, if you will. There, there it is. Uh, this pattern is obvious. It's apparent. The alliteration that you see up here comes from Dr. Harold Wilmington. I don't take credit for that. I borrowed that from him. But uh, you, you see this pattern in the seven churches develop over and over. Every church has this pattern. There's only two churches of the seven that don't get some kind of chastening. I might have said correction if I had been doing the, the, the letter, but if I'd have been doing the alliteration. But the counselor, you're going to see an image of Jesus. He's going to tell you something about the person of Christ. There's a commendation. Y'all are doing good here. We're really happy about what, you know, what's happening here. There's chastening or correction, but here's a problem. Here's something you've got to deal with. There's the counsel. Here's what you should be doing because what you need to correct is, is a reality in your church. Here's what my counsel to you is. And then there's a challenge that is offered. And in all seven of these churches, you find that pattern repeated. As I said, there's only two that don't get correction. And you'll see one of them tonight. I'm just going to leave that up there because as we go through these churches, you're going to see it. I might not use that alliteration every time. But you will see it in your mind. And one of the fun things for you to do is to take a piece of paper, write down those five words, and then read through chapters two and three, and and then just make a list under each of those, you know, the different things that you read as you're reading through uh, the message to these churches. Now, a couple of things to know about these seven churches. Not only were they local churches, some people believe that these churches represented different periods of the church age. In other words, uh, you, you can look at these churches and the conditions of these churches, and you can say, okay, that represented this period of history, and this church represented this period and this period. For instance, the Ephesus church they say represented, could represent the apostolic church. That's from about 30 AD to 100 AD. The church at Smyrna represented the persecuted church from 100 AD to 313. Uh, The Pergamos church represented the state church uh, from 313 to 590. 
the Thyatira church was the papal church. That's when uh, you know, the Roman church became so prominent uh, from 590 to uh, 1517. The Sardis church was the reformed church, they say, from 1517 to 1790. By the way, all this is in the notes and in the book. In Philadelphia, the Philadelphia church was the missionary church from 1790 to 1900. And then the Laodicean church is the apostate church from 1900 until present. And so it's possible that you can take these local churches and you can divide them up and you can say, okay, some of the characteristics of these local churches represent periods of history. Now, whether that's what God was trying to do, I I don't want to step out and be overly bold about that. I'm just saying that that's something that can be done. I'm more interested in us looking at what God says specifically to these particular churches and learning the lessons that we can learn from these particular churches. Because there's a message to all of us in all seven of these churches, uh, even though we might be living in what some view as the apostate church age. So we begin with the church in Ephesus, um, and we just start with verse 1. To the angel of the church at Ephesus write. Now, we've already talked about this a little bit. Uh, Let me go back and just refresh your memory. The Greek word for angel can refer to a literal angel like you and I think of an angel, or it sometimes is used of a man, uh, meaning a messenger, And it's my opinion, if you were with me last week, it's my opinion that these, uh, or this revelation was delivered to the pastors of these churches, from God the Father to God the Son to the angel to John to the pastors of these churches, the angel of these churches, the messenger in these churches. And so it's very possible, very likely that the angel of the church at Ephesus is the, the one who's the pastor of that church, the one who's the elder in that church. These things say, he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. So let me ask you a question. Which of those five words does verse one fit into? The counselor. What gives us the picture of Jesus? He's holding the seven stars in his right hand, which means they belong to him. He's providing for them. He's protecting them. He walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. The lampstands are, are pictures. They are representative of the church, the churches in general. They are the light in the midst of the darkness. And that's a description of Christ. He's the counselor. And here's a picture of the counselor. Ephesus was one of the greatest political, religious, and commercial cities of the region. And it was the capital of that Roman province in Asia. It was the home to the temple of Artemis. You read about Artemis in Acts chapter 19, verse 35. It was the Greek, he was the Greek goddess of fertility. She's also known by the Romans as Diana. Uh, the temple there is one of the seven wonders of the world. This temple to Diana, this Greek goddess is one of the seven wonders of the world. In this religion, along with many others that are found to have existed in Ephesus, were a constant opposition to Christianity. They were constantly standing opposed to the advancing of the gospel and the advancing of the church. That Christ is in the midst of these seven golden lampstands is a reminder that he's in, his very presence is in these churches. He has firsthand knowledge 
of what's going on in these churches. He has firsthand knowledge of the troubles that they're having to endure. He has firsthand knowledge of the trials that these churches are facing. I'm, I'm glad to be able to tell you that the, the Lord Jesus is in our midst. He is here. Uh, he is with us. He sees us. He knows us. He understands us. He, he comprehends uh, with firsthand knowledge all the things that we are facing in the world in which we live, the troubles and the trials and the triumphs. He sees it all. He knows it all. And he is with us. Verse 2, he says, I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not and have found them liars. Now, I love the description. He knows their works. He knows their labors. He knows how patient, enduring they have been. He knows that they're pure. They can't bear with those that are evil. Another way of saying this is they're very orthodox. They're very doctrinally pure. Uh, they're standing on the truth, if you will. They've even gone so, so far as to test some. There's been some amongst them that claim to be apostles and claim to be speaking for Christ, but are not. They found them to be liars. They're not, they're not really speaking for Christ. By the way, that's so important today, isn't it, to be discerning? Not everybody that says they're speaking for Christ is speaking for Christ. Uh, and we have, you know, we have access, our kids have access or they, they have access to our kids. So much information and information overload on the television and in the radio. If people still listen to the radio, I do, the, the radio or uh, by way of the internet, the, maybe the most dangerous part, by way of the internet, information is always coming. You do know that not everything on the internet is true. And that's true when it comes to people who claim to be speaking on behalf of Christ. Not everybody is speaking on behalf of Christ is true. Not everybody is someone that is worthy of, of listening to. Um, here I go trying to not do this, but I'm sermonizing here again. I'm trying to quit that. But one of the things I like doing during the middle of a day uh, from about 10 o'clock till about one o'clock uh, is to listen to W107.9, uh, uh, whatever that is. I can't think. It. What is it? W-E-M-M. Yeah, -E there you go. 107.9. Uh, Oliver B. Green, uh, J. Vernon McGee. I've been on the Bible bus with J. Vernon McGee for, I, I don't know, I learned more Bible probably from J. Vernon McGee when I was a kid than anywhere else at that particular time in my life. Uh, listening to um, uh, Adrian Rogers, uh, and the list goes on. Um, I, I, I like to listen to them, and I, and I listen as I'm, I'm driving along, and it takes me back to when I was a young believer, and I was listening to the truth being taught. But now I've turned that station on on other occasions, and I've heard some good preaching, and, and well, I've heard some not so good preaching. And I don't mean by the style, I mean by the content. Not everything we hear is the truth. We, we need to be orthodox. We need to make sure that we're doctrinally pure. The church at Ephesus was that. They were testing people. What they were hearing, they were testing them. They claimed to be speaking as an apostle, one sent from God. But not everybody was. They found some of them to be liars. 
and so there's a commendation. Do you see the commendation? He's commending them for this. This is good. Churches should seek to be doctrinally pure. Churches should seek to be orthodox. We should seek to follow the scripture. We should seek to know the truth. Amen? We should seek to know the truth. Nobody knows it perfectly in every aspect. But we should seek to know the truth. But then comes the chastening, or as I might have said, correction. Verse 2. I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those that are evil. You've tested those that say they're apostles, they're liars. Verse 3. And you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. I jumped ahead. That's still part of the commendation. He's still commending them. You persevered. You've been patient, enduring. You, were, you kept on laboring in the midst of all this. You didn't become weary. Isn't it hard sometimes not to get weary in the world you live in? They didn't, even though they had all the pushback, even though they had these apostles that weren't really the apostles speaking on behalf of Christ. But then comes the correction. Then comes the chastening in verse, verse 4. Nevertheless, uh-oh, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Isn't that sad? You have left your first love. So let me ask you a question. Is it possible to be 100% orthodox and 100% doctrinally pure and to have lost your love for Jesus? Absolutely it is. I mean, you can rightly divide the word of truth and you can cut everything out that isn't the truth and you can get it so correct and so sharp and so exact, but in the process... It becomes mere intellectualism. It becomes a matter of being religious and, and ceremonial and formal. But you lose the passion in your heart for Jesus. And that apparently is something that had happened to the church at Ephesus. I mean, it's possible to be a busy, hardworking, and doctrinally sound church, but to drift from the Lord. It's possible to be so concerned with cleansing the church that we fail to cleave to Christ. Uh, it reminds me very much of the story of Mary and Martha. Jesus comes to their house, and what happens? Uh, Mary goes and sits at his feet and just soaks up his words. And where's Martha? She's very, she's very doctrinally correct. She's very orthodox. She's got it all together. She's rattling the pots and pans, but she's not happy because her sister's not helping her. And Jesus, aren't you going to do something to make your sister, my sister come help me? And Jesus says to her, what? She's chosen the better thing. She's chosen the better thing. Now, are you saying, Pastor, it's more important to love Jesus than have sound doctrine? Listen, sound doctrine is absolutely essential. If you don't have sound doctrine, you don't even really know the Jesus you're talking about that you love. We, we don't get to make up this Jesus. We don't get to make up this God how we want him to be. That's idolatry. We discover him off the pages of Scripture. The Holy Spirit brings us into his word. We rightly divide the word of truth. We discover who he is off the pages of Scripture, and then we lift him up, we exalt him, we hold him high. But it's possible to be so right and so correct and so accurate, but in the process you've lost your heart for Jesus. By the way, one of the ways that you can know that is how you treat one another. Did you get that? You know, you, you, you become so accurate and so precise 
and so exact, but in the process, in losing your love for Jesus, you lose your love for his people. And Jesus said, by this all men shall know that you're my disciples, that you what? That's not love the world. We ought to love the world. We ought to love them enough to carry them the gospel. But that's to love one another. If we don't love one another, then the world won't know that we're followers of Jesus. And yet we're so critical of each other. We're so hard on one another. You know, sometimes we have a hard time, you know, I do sometimes, probably you do too as well, making sure that we're doctrinally orthodox, but in the process we cross over into being mean-spirited and difficult to get along with and harsh and unkind and, you know, less than tactful. Apparently, the church here at Ephesus had become very mechanical in their ministry without the manifestation of love for Christ and for other believers, and that's a sad way for us to find them. And that's the the chastening. That's the correction that they're getting from the Lord. Verse 5, remember, therefore, here we go with the counsel. Here comes the counsel. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works. We'll come back there for a moment. First works? What did you do that caused your heart to fall in love with Jesus and to grow close to Jesus? What works did you do? Or else, he says, I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. What, is, what are the first works of a believer? It's pursuing Christ with all of our heart, having the works of a time with God in his word and a time with God in prayer, of gathering together with the people of God for the worship of God and so forth and so on. There are works that we do. Think about your money. We talked about money this morning. What does Jesus say? Where your treasure is, What? How about that? That's one of the first works that we did that caused us to fall in love with Jesus. Can I give an offering and just get into a perfunctory kind of a duty where it's just a matter of going through the motion? Sure you can. But we're supposed to go back to those works that caused our heart to be ignited with a deepening and growing love for Jesus. And the church at Ephesus had all of the, you know, every I was dotted and every T was crossed. And they got all their doctrine just right. And they weeded out those that were teaching the wrong kind of doctrine. They exposed them. These are liars. These aren't the true ones. But in the process, they had lost their love for Jesus Christ. And they lost their love for one another. And he comes to them with this, with this counsel. And he says, you've you got to remember your first works. And if you don't do that, the result is going to be he's going to remove the lampstand. You know what that means? He's going to put that church's light out. How many churches do you know that, how many buildings do you know that used to be churches that are no longer churches? I, I told you I've been a member of three churches in, in my lifetime. And two of the three no longer exist. And that's scary. Maybe I'm the reason. (laughs) Two of the three no longer exist. Um, You know, uh, I never want God to put the lampstand out here, right? Don't, do you? I want us to be doctrinally pure. I want us to be exact when it comes to the word. 
You know, I, we're going to see here in a few minutes one of these, some of these other churches compromised, and the result of compromise is never good. So, so he's not here advising compromise. Doctrinal purity is absolutely a necessity. We have to examine the truth of Scripture and make sure that we know what we believe and why we believe it, but we have to be careful that in the process that we don't lose a heart for Jesus. Because if we lose our heart for Jesus, well, the result of that is that he can cause our church to lose its light in the dark world. Look at verse 6. He goes on with this counsel. He says, but this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. We will meet the Nicolaitans again a little bit later in another of the churches. So apparently they were a prominent problem that had to deal with. And not only did they hate their deeds, he says the Lord himself hates their deeds. Who are the Nicolaitans? They were a heretical group in the early church who advocated accommodating pagan society by eating foods that were offered to idols and engaging in sexual immorality. As a matter of fact, I tell you something. When you read through this, as I did this past week, these two chapters again this, this past week, notice how many churches have sexual immorality that are mentioned as a part of the correction or the chastening that they get. Just notice it. I mean, it, it's amazing. But the Nicolaitans, you know, they, they recommended to, to accommodate the pagan society, to eat foods that were offered to idol, to engage in this sexual immorality, to get involved in the pagan feasts. Do we have kids in here? And in the orgies that they, took, that they, that they had around these pagan feasts. Um, I look at the church today, and it, and it bothers me. Um, we see in all denominations, uh, children that are abused, uh, people in positions of authority taking advantage of people that are under their care. Um, we have adultery going on in congregations. Uh, in what, what's coming, it's already in the process, it's already here, is the accommodating of sexual immorality when it comes to homosexuality and transgenderism. And churches have already begun to soften their stance to accommodate pagan society. There are modern day Nic Nicolaitans amongst us who say it's okay. We've got to love people. And if you tell them the truth about their lifestyle, that you're, you're homophobic or you're transphobic or you hate them in some way, but the truth of the matter is, in 1 Corinthians 13, love always speaks the truth. Love always speaks the truth. And uh, I know people that are homosexuals, and I treat them kindly and considerately. But if I, I'm asked the question, is my lifestyle right or wrong, I'm, I'm going to tell them the truth. I know a couple of people that are in the process of changing sexes to something different, and if I'm asked the question, is this right or wrong, I'm going to tell them the truth. That's wrong. I don't know why we don't follow the science. You were assigned to sex at birth by your genetics. You were assigned to sex at birth. Boy, I'm off to preaching again. You, you were assigned to sex at birth, 
And uh, I, you, you know, calling somebody a person rather than a him or a her or a they instead of a him or a her is just absolutely the most foolish and ridiculous thing I've ever heard in my whole life. But that doesn't mean I want to be unkind or mean-spirited or that I'm hateful. Actually, I want to give them the gospel because Jesus can change them. Jesus can change them. Jesus uh, can't. Listen, maybe, maybe those desires that were... Or, by the way, where do those desires come from? They come from the sin nature that every one of us has. And for them, their sin nature expresses itself in the wrong desires. But look, we all have wrong desires that comes out of our old nature, right? We, we, you don't? I'm the only one? <laughs> We all have wrong desires, but here's what we don't do. We don't say, well, you know what? I can't love one woman. I have to love 10 women. So I'm going to indulge myself. It doesn't work that way. At least not at my house. It doesn't work that way. (laughs) It doesn't work that way. By the way, that's not my problem. (laughs) I should have chosen a different example. (laughs) Say what? Chocolate cake. Why did I choose chocolate cake? Uh, yeah, chocolate cake is one of those things too. Here, here's, you, you follow what I'm saying? We don't tell people what just didn't. Well, you know, I can't help it that I steal. I mean, I just, I have this inner compulsion to go steal. Well, then you just go steal. It's okay. You don't tell people that. No matter what your inner compulsion is, you bring it under the mastery of Jesus Christ. You don't give leeway to your sinful nature and just say, well, it's okay to, to be sinful in this respect. I can't help myself. Yes, you can. Romans chapter 6 says that he's given you the power. He, he broke the power, the chains of sin in your life. He's given you the ability to live in victory over sin. Now, all of us are in the process, and all of us have areas where we're at work, and those that are homosexuals and those that are trans, trans, uh, uh, transgender, they may have those, those, those tendencies and those leanings, but you don't give in to them. You bring them under the control of Jesus. Amen. Well, there's my preaching for the night. So we're not going to cover even two churches. (laughs) And so we come to the challenge. You ready for the challenge? Verse 7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life. That's to have fellowship and communion. What man was supposed to have in the garden, but he lost because of sin, God will restore which is in the midst of the paradise of God. That, that tree, that uh, garden is no longer that fellowship. And that tree of life is no longer in the garden. It's in the paradise of God. And who has access to the paradise of God? The children of God. And by the way, when he says overcomes, anyone who is a believer is an overcomer. Uh, keep, keep your place there in Revelation. I turn just a few pages back uh, to 1 John chapter 5. Just maybe four or five pages back in your Bible. First John chapter 5. The word overcomer, you're going to see it several times through here, is a term referring to people who are believers in Jesus. Now, practically, sometimes we don't overcome, we succumb. 
But positionally, we are all overcomers through Jesus Christ. Chapter 5, verse 4 and 5. For whatever is born of God, here's the word, overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. What is it? Our faith. Who is he who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. And so when you see this repeated through here, sometimes practically we're not acting like overcomers, but positionally all of us who have believed in Jesus are overcomers. And those who are overcomers will be those who have fellowship with God and have access to that tree of life where we have communion with God and that tree is in the paradise of God. If you're going to have that access, you're going to have to go to, you have to be with God in heaven. He's going to, he's, he's, you know, that's what he's made available to every one of us. And so he finishes. The counselor, the commendation, the chastening, the counsel, and the challenge. Then we move to the church in Smyrna. Maybe we can do two, two churches. You think we can? And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, these things says the first and the last who was dead and came to life. So, so who's the counselor? It's the first and the last who was dead and who came to life. That, that's the description of the counselor. You see it? Smyrna was a prosperous seaport city on the Mediterranean about 40 miles north of Ephesus. The word Smyrna literally means bitter. It means bitter. In other words, symbolically, Smyrna was a bitter place for believers to live. There were Christians in Smyrna who were literally fed to the wild beasts in the local arenas, and they were burned to death. One interesting story, it's not necessarily about Smyrna, but to give you an illustration, is the story about Polycarp. Polycarp, one of the early church fathers and pastors who ended up giving his life as a martyr at 86 years of age, said just before they would burn him to death, he said, you threaten fire that burns for an hour and it's over, but the judgment on the ungodly is forever. And in AD 155, at the hands of the Romans, he lost his life as a martyr. That's sort of the image that you're getting when you talk about the church at Smyrna. That's the kind of thing that people in Smyrna were having to deal with. Now we move to the commendation. Verse 9, I know your works, tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do you get it? He sees their works. He knows their works. They're being persecuted. It's severe, but they go on serving the Lord. They endure the tribulation. They're in poverty. You understand part of the poverty, the reason for part of the poverty is because to, follow, to become a follower of Jesus, to, to come out and say, I'm a Christian, I'm a follower of Jesus, sometimes costs you your job. It cuts you off and you were done. You had no more ability to work. They wouldn't allow you to work. They'd make it impossible for you to work. But he says, you're not really poor. You're really rich. And aren't we rich? No matter how much money or how little money we have, the fact of the matter is in Jesus Christ, every one of us is rich all of the riches that come from Christ. He says there, there are those amongst them that are blaspheming. They're, they're saying these arrogant things, speaking against. The word blasphemy means the speaking against Christ. He says they're Jews. Uh, didn't Jesus come to his own? And his own did what? They received him not. 
And it continued on after the resurrection and the ascension of Christ back to heaven. The Jews, the unbelieving Jews, continued to push against anything related to Christ. So much so that he calls those particular Jews the synagogue of Satan. That's not a compliment. That's not a compliment. By the word, by the way, the word for poverty, there's, there's two different words, at least two different words for poverty. One means that you're poor, but you can help yourself. The other that's used here is a word that means you are completely helpless. You can't do anything for yourself. That's how, that's how destitute and how difficult the circumstances for believers were in the city of, in this city of Smyrna. I mean, it was a bitter place for Christians to have to live and for Christians to have to be. And it was coming from the Jewish community that was opposed to Christ and opposed to the things of Christ. They even made up a synagogue called the synagogue of Satan. I mean, that's, uh, that's pretty strong wording, wouldn't you say? And, and he says, I know, I, I know where you live. He's commending them. I know what you're having to go through. I, I understand what you're having to deal with. But then he's going to give to them some correction here. But by the way, not yet. He's still commending them. Verse 10. He says, do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Wow. Anybody like to hear those kind of words? Don't, don't fear any of the things you're about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and you will have tribulation 10 days. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. We've got to talk about the 10 days. What does he mean by 10 days? Well, I'm going to give you the three views. It either means 10 periods of persecution that correspond to the, to the 10 different Roman rulers from Nero to Diocletian. You follow what I'm saying? 10 days, days referring, a day referring to a period of time rather than a 24-hour day. It can mean that. It can mean the 10 years of persecutions that Christians had to specifically endure under the reign of Diocletian alone. Those 10 days could refer to 10 years where Diocletian unleashed, you know, horror against Christians. Or it can be a representative phrase, not necessarily indicating a specific time period, Ten is sometimes used in connection with periods of testing. In other words, he says ten days. It's a, he's using it in a, in a uh, not in a literal sense, but as a time period. There's going to be a period of time of testing that you have to endure because that's how the number ten is sometimes used. Genesis twenty four fifty five, Daniel one twelve to fifteen, Daniel one twenty, and so forth. Now, which of those three? You know, we're not going to argue it out. What we're going to recognize is that this church was undergoing intense persecution. This, this church was dealing with some serious issues. And what does he say to them? He says, I want you to be faithful. Whether it's the 10 years of Diocletian, whether it's 10 periods of time under the 10 Roman rulers, or whether the number 10 is just you know, symbolic of a period of time of suffering that they have to endure. He says, what I want you to know is you, I want you to be faithful even if it means you die. And if you do so, I have a crown to give you. You know there's five crowns that the Bible talks about giving? Did y'all know that? There's five crowns that the Bible talks about giving. 
One of those crowns is given to those who die and suffer persecution. It's called the crown of life. And he says, I'll give you that crown if you'll be faithful, even if it means you get thrown to the animals or you get burned to death like Polycarp would later be burned to death. Instead of concerning themselves with the duration of their trials, what we need to focus on is that they were encouraged to be faithful. They were encouraged to be faithful. This is one of only two churches. The other one we won't get to, well, it may not even be next week. This is one of only two churches that wasn't corrected, chastened in some way. Isn't it interesting? This is one of only two. It's amazing how persecution purges the church. I don't like persecution. I, I love living in America where we've had incredible liberty and freedoms. And... Um, you know, the gospel has been respected and Christianity uh, has been given liberty uh, to, to, to proclaim the gospel. I mean, I, I love living in America, but I think we're moving to a day. I, I am certain that we are moving to a day when there's going to be increasing actual persecution against Christians. It, it may not be that we're going to be burned at the stake. It may not be that uh, we're going to be thrown to lions but there are all kinds of lions. You know what I'm saying? You know, they don't have to be literal, actual lions. There are all kinds of lions to be thrown to. That the, new, the news media is one kind of lion to be thrown to. And I think that day is coming, and I think there's going to be a purging in God's church before Jesus comes again. Before I hope there's a revival. I think there's going to be a purging in God's church that's going, to be the, that's going to be precipitated by some measure, some form of persecution. You know, I was talking to my son on vacation. He works for a, a secular company, and he's having to do diversity training. And uh, he said, Dad, I don't want to do this. I don't, I don't like this. I don't, I don't agree with it. I don't want to, I don't want to, but I, I got to do it to keep my job. Mm. that's coming. If it's not already in your workplace, it's coming. I, am I right, Steve? It's coming. Steve's a lawyer. That's why I asked Steve. He has to defend me if I get in trouble. There is no counsel to this church because this church, this church had nothing. They were pure. This was a church by, per, by persecution. They had been purified by persecution. But then comes, if you will, the challenge. Verse 11, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. Who's the overcomer? The believer in Jesus. He won't be hurt by what? The second death. Now we're going to talk about the second death. It's not till later in the book of Revelation, all the way back to chapter 20, where we talk about the second death. So maybe next, year we'll <laughs> maybe next year we'll talk about the second death. But hey, listen, listen, you, you don't want to be there at the second death. Those that are at the second death are cast into the lake of fire where they have to pay the penalty of their own sins forever because they rejected Jesus Christ. You, you understand what we call hell today is not the permanent place where the departed 
unbelievers will be forever. It's a temporary holding place. It's not purgatory. It's a temporary holding place until the great white throne judgment and following the great white throne judgment will be the second death. We're all going to die once. Unless Jesus comes first, we're all going to die once. We don't want to be at the second death because that means you've rejected Jesus and you've been cast into the lake of fire. And we'll talk more about that. And who is it that's who is it that won't be cast into the lake of fire? It's the overcomers. And who are the overcomers? The overcomers are the ones who have believed in Jesus Christ. They're the ones who escape the second death. Now, I'm going to finish there. And we're, are, are y'all in a hurry? Okay. Then I, I'm not going to be in a big hurry. Um, and we will cover maybe a few extra churches than we covered tonight if I cannot preach every time I get to something that needs to be said. Hey, I, I was sitting with some people, um, and they asked me, they said, what do you do? What, what, do, you, what do you all do when uh, you have people that are transgender or homosexual who come to your congregation? What do you do? We welcome them. We love them. We tell them about Jesus. They can sit here and hear the preaching of the gospel, but they can't join the church. Because to join the church means to agree to our doctrinal statement. And our doctrinal statement has something to say about what you believe on sexuality. Well, what if they're pushing for you to change? And if you don't change, uh, this particular situation, they told me, they said, uh, our pastor said something very mild from 1 Corinthians chapter 6 about homosexuals. And after the service, a group of people came to him and said, we're not happy about what you said and that you made any reference to homosexuals. We should love everybody. We should welcome everybody and everybody should have opportunity to be a member of our church. And if you don't change your view, we're going to leave the church. And they said, what would you do? They're asking me, Mary was sitting there with me. What would you do? I, I, I don't, I, I said it as nicely as I know how to say it. I'm sorry. That's, that's the way it works. You can sit with us. You can hear the preaching. Hopefully let the gospel change your life. But we're not going to change the message. By, by the way, I don't, I don't preach on this every week, do I? Maybe I need to. But I don't preach on this every week. Tell you what do. Take the other churches. Take this pattern and get ahead for next week so you can let me speed up. It's your fault. It's your fault that we're so far behind. It's not my fault. It's your fault we're so far behind. All right. Let's pray together. Father, I never want to have an unloving spirit toward anyone. I know sometimes I have, and I've had to confess that unloving spirit. But Lord, you mixed and mingled with sinners and tax collectors and publicans. You reached out to people that the rest of society neglected and ignored and forgot. And Lord, the truth of the matter is they need the gospel. They need the life-changing message of the gospel. I pray, Lord, that our church will never be so exact and so orthodox and so cut and dry that we lose our heart for you 
and thus lose our heart for people. But Lord, in the process of loving people, we can't either compromise with the pagan world around us and the immorality around us. Lord, the church has a black eye. Lord, there's been a lot of sexual immorality that has existed around churches. Lord, I'm ashamed that it's been named even once among the people of God, but it has. And it, it's brought disrepute to your name. It's brought disrepute to, to, to all of us. But Lord, I pray that you'll help us to have a heart for you, to have a heart for the truth, to have a heart for people. Lord, it's the truth that sets us free. It's not the lies. It's the truth that sets us free. And sometimes the truth is not easily received or easily delivered. But Lord, help us to always deliver it in the fashion you delivered the truth. And if it requires persecution and it requires pushback, if it requires being thrown to the media lions, God, help us not to compromise, but help us to have compassion in the process. Dismiss us now with your blessings. Help us to be a church, Lord. I pray that you'll help us to be a church that continues to be a light and that you don't have to remove the angel of the church and you don't have to put the light of the church out, that this church never has Ichabod written across the front of it, that the glory is departed. God, may you be honored and glorified and uplifted in this place until we see you face to face. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you and thank you for being here this evening.